Guy Adami here with my dear friend Dan Nathan and Danny Moses, both dear friends, special on the tape, folks, because you know why? The market warranted it. We wanted to break in with this. We're going to have two special guests off the tape, Victor Jones, the CEO of Doe, and Alex Lieberman, the CEO of Morning Brew. But first, let me rant a little bit because I'm a bit exercised, as you can probably hear in my voice. All markets at all-time highs, which is great, folks. I hope everybody's making a lot of money. But I got to tell you something. The warning signs are there, and they're manifesting themselves all over the place. We had a guest on Fast Money the other night talking about valuations not really mattering, and maybe the right multiple for the S&P 500 is somewhere between 25 and 30, and seemingly nothing stopping the market. You know, I asked for the existential risk, and the best thing you could probably say was the fact that maybe inflation gets here faster than everybody thought. By the way, inflation is here. It's here in all the wrong places. It's in here in the way the Fed doesn't want to measure. And that's going to come back to bite them in the you-know-what. But in the meantime, market's doing well. I don't know what to tell you folks. Enjoy the ride. But I think this ride is about to stop. Yeah, guy, it's called YOLO, buddy. I mean, you only live once. And get in there, whether it's the stock market, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's both of them combined. I mean, listen, you know, we just went through this really crazy period in the markets. And I think we'll all look back at this and just say, you know, this was a, a signal of something. The goalposts have been moved when it comes to equity valuations. The new playbooks are being written. We know that that's not likely to last particularly too long. I I just think there's a level of complacency for all of the above that is probably seeping into your awareness of other periods where we're about to kind of go into some corrective mode or where risk asset returns look a little different than they have in the past. I'll just mention this. This caught my eye on Friday afternoon. It was an article on Bloomberg. It was entitled, Junk Buyers Desperate for Debt Are Pressing Companies to Borrow. And it starts off by saying, money managers are having such a tough time getting their hands on debt in the 2.8 trillion dollar market for junk bonds and leveraged loans. They are calling up companies and pressing them to borrow instead of waiting for bankers to bring new deals to them. I mean, come on, guys. I mean, we We've seen this sort of activity where people are tripping over each other to get access to investments or yield or anything like that. It just can't end particularly well. Why raise debt, Dan, when you can just raise equity, as we see in these SPACs, which, guy, what's the song sign, sign? Tell me where the song, what is it? I mean, you're the music guy. I don't know. You, if you, maybe if you sang it correctly, I could- Signs, <laughs> signs, ever. By the way, that was a remake. Who needs debt um, when you can get access to the equity market in these SPACs? And every time I think that the sign that the market is topping, I get another one and I get another one. And when Alex Rodriguez files for a $500 million SPAC, I said, this has to be the end. I mean, who's going to give this guy money? Then we have the former CEO of Boeing, the one that oversaw the two 737 MAX crashes. What is he doing? He's raising a SPAC, $200 million. What's his target? Aerospace defense. Good luck with that. Then we have Theo Epstein. Okay, that one I'll do because he's Red Sox and Cubs. He's coming to the market. But to put this in perspective, just the IPOs is $20 billion a year to date. That doesn't count registrations. That doesn't count closed deals. And there have been a couple of things where, again, buyer beware. You get a, something like a Clover Health, you know, for better or for worse, not disclosing a DOJ investigation because sometimes in, in SPAC lane, you don't have to disclose certain things and you're able to give a forecast. So, you know, when there'll be winners in this space. There's going to be losers in this space, but it just seems too easy right now. And 
Alex Rodriguez guy. I mean, come on. No, I'm not a big A-Rod guy. I hated when he came to the Yankees. He had that big year in 09. But, yeah, I got to tell you something. He, he brought some negative feng shui, as they say, to the team. And it really, if you think about it, they haven't recovered since. That's just my opinion as a lifelong Yankee fan. And you mentioned Clover, Danny. And, of course, I think of the great Crimson and Clover written by Tommy James and the Shondells. But I will tell you that Joan Jett made that song what it is today. Any thoughts on that? You're right, Joan Jett did, because I don't even think you know the original version. So Yeah, I, I, I would just mention this about your prom this. song? Yeah. yeah. So, I would just mention song. this about this A-Rod SPAC, okay? This is not a small SPAC. This is a $500 million SPAC, okay? And it's called Slam Corp. So when we're looking back at some point, and we're talking about signs of the top, I think that the Slam Corp SPAC might be one. But that being said, Danny, you know, you've been very skeptical of the vehicle. You've been skeptical of the disclosures needed to raise this sort of capital. I want to push back for one second here because I get it. It looks like a money grab. And that's what a lot of people are suggesting is going on here. But if there weren't demand for this sort of vehicle right now by investors, whether they be institutional at first and then retail, they wouldn't be able to happen here. So what is it saying to you? I mean, is this is this the point? You're just saying that we're just kind of in, in YOLO land here in the markets. Well, obviously, let me just round this out by saying SPACs are on steroids. That'll pretty much encompass the Alex Rodriguez SPAC. But of course, there's winners. There, there's going to be winners that are, that are that are there. And you're getting real investment banks on top of the other investment banks that have been working their ass off to get these SPACs to market. I mean, BTIG, Jefferies, Canner have been working hard, but you know, Citi's, Citigroup's been involved. Credit Suisse, as you know, Dan, has been involved. Here comes Goldman Sachs. Here comes Morgan Stanley. These guys are now coming to the market. Why? Because the economics of the SPAC are now kind of starting to meet closer, at least make it closer to the economics of the IPO market. The IPO market traditionally five, six percent type fees. A year ago, these SPACs were kind of 20 to 25 percent fees. If you fees slash dilution, if you add that in to the target company. So now we're down to 10, 12. We're seeing warrant coverage be a little bit less each time. That's going to be a lot more attractive. And you know what you get to do in a SPAC? You get to wait a couple of years. And if the market has a correction, what happens in the traditional IPO market? You pull the IPO, it ruins the complexion of the company. So no, there are huge advantages to the SPAC market, but it just seems a little bit easy. SPAC on steroids, Shomer Shabbos. Biggest advantage right now is rappers rapping about SPACs, name checking the guy Adami literally happened. It's all over the interwebs. It was on CNBC today. Some guy and his crew getting rich on SPACs, name checking guy Adami. Which is amazing for you folks out there that think I'm just a relic of a, of a bygone era. I'm actually one of the cool kids. And when I say cool kids, it's K-E-W-L kids, just so you know. Who was and the rapper? Who was the rapper that doesn't did matter? It? A fact that a rapper mentioned my name makes me cool, <laughs> Danny Moses. Yeah, all right, fair enough. And by the way, that rapper actually reached out to me and he wants to have a, a more conversations going forward about including me in some of his work. But the other thing we need to talk about is the fact that Elon Musk just announced, and by the way, Danny, your hoodlum friends actually predicted this last week, and we'll get to that. But the fact that Tesla now put a billion and a half dollars of their cash on hand into Bitcoin and they're sort of laughing about it as Bitcoin goes north of 45,000. Yeah, listen, I, you know, it's interesting. There's there's two situations going on here, right? This this cult-like following for cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin, is very similar to what we've seen as far as these disciples or these followers of Elon Musk and the true belief in what he was going to do with this electric car company. And the fact that they are converging at this point in time when equity markets are at all-time highs, I know that guy is worried about the 10-year U.S. Treasury 
yield at 1.2. I'm not particularly worried about it. When you think about we're about to have nearly $2 trillion of stimulus added into our economy in 2021 on top of the nearly $4 trillion in the last 12 months or so. I mean, it just all seems to be coming together at a time where every crazy narrative is just converging here. So, you know, to me, again, I think that, you know, we spent the last few minutes talking about some very bubblicious behavior and a bunch of different risk assets. And I just think that you'd be kind of nuts not to be paying attention and keeping a ledger here. Yeah. And later in the week, we're going to talk about this in depth with two crypto ballers, by the way. It's going to be fun towards the end of the week with On the Tape. But just to wrap this whole thing up, yes, I am concerned about interest rates, 10-year yields at 1.2%, because they've gone from 50 basis points over the summer. They've more than doubled. And oh, by the way, when that happens again over the next six months, we're going to be having a much different conversation with the U.S. dollar going lower, a witch's brew in my opinion, folks. Whatever Elon Musk can do to detract from his fundamentals of his company, he'll do. And the SEC obviously can't rein him in. He talks about Dogecoin all weekend. He talks about Bitcoin all weekend. And then he goes and buys Bitcoin and says he's going to accept it. He just throws stuff out there. You're going to go buy a car with Bitcoin? How's the sales tax going to work out on that? You're going to go register your car? I, you know, this, he just throws stuff out there and, and see if it sticks. And he normally does this when he wants to distract from stuff going on in his business. There was three or four pieces of bad news that came out on Tesla over the last week. He has a pattern of doing this. If I'm a Bitcoin person, I'm upset that Tesla has married me at this point or is marrying, my, marrying himself to me because that's going to come back to bite Bitcoin. It's funny that you say that because, you know, the MicroStrategy CEO, this guy Saylor, who Guy actually interviewed on uh, CNBC a couple of weeks ago, he actually was doing a digital presentation for, for, for corporates on how to add Bitcoin into their thing. I mean, I, the Bitcoin community is all in. This is a massive pillar of their long-term bull thesis is that it will be Come a part of a reserve currency or in place of a reserve currency, and then the ability to transact with it. So if you're thinking about the reason why Elon Musk wants to do it, he wants to allow people to transact for his product with Bitcoin. It makes perfect sense. I'm just telling you this is that at some point in the not so distant future, I don't know if you count all those commercials for EVs coming from GM and Ford and everything like that, some pretty sleek cars coming. If that stock were to sell off precipitously and 10% or more of their cash position is in Bitcoin, and that happens to sell off. Guy uses this expression all the time, which is brew. Oh my goodness, people are not going to know what to do with these assets. And by the way, you folks listening, that was not the ghost of John Bonham on the bass drum. That was Danny Moses pounding the table as he got exorcised himself (laughs) over these things, SPACs and Tesla and Bitcoin. And by the way, we have a great interview coming up with Alex Lieberman, CEO and founder of Morning Brew. We'll be right back on the tape. Welcome back to On the Tape. We're going off the tape with Alex Lieberman. Alex Lieberman is the co-founder and CEO of Morning Brew. This was a business media company that was started in 2015. They have multiple newsletters and podcasts. They reach over two and a half million readers and a majority stake in the company was just sold to Business Insider, a pioneer in the financial business news digital landscape that we've been reading for years. Reportedly, it's $75 million for controlling stake at late last year. 
Alex, you also host the Founders Journal. We're going to get into that a little bit later. That is a podcast uh, which documents the entrepreneurial journey to help support other business leaders. Um, so, Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Here. Thanks for having me. Pumped to do it. So, you know, it's interesting. Danny Moses, Guy Dami, and I, we've been, we started our podcast on the tape about a month ago. You and I have been in contact. You've been very generous with kind of some of your feedback, and I appreciate that. Um, some of the boomers here and there, we need a little help from, from the kids today. But, you know, it's funny getting to know you a little bit. You started this company, Morning Brew, in 2015. You were a junior or a senior in college. You started it with your partner, Austin, who was maybe a sophomore at the time. You guys were obviously interested in business. You're obviously interested in markets. What was the purpose for starting a new company? Uh, What was the financial media industry not doing that you guys wanted to fix? Yeah. First of all, thanks for having me. And it's funny because if you were to ask people at the time, people have probably said there's no problem in financial media. There is a ton of content out there. Why do we need more of it? And to be totally honest with you, I came from a financial services background. My dad worked in mortgage trading for Citigroup for 20 years. My mom worked in repo sales for 20 years. Grandpa worked at Prudential. So like I grew up reading the Wall Street Journal and talking about agency mortgages at the dinner table, really interesting family. And so I was like the Wall Street Journal reader because I was just indoctrinated in it growing up. But what happened was I was in my senior year at Michigan. I had all this free time because I'd accepted a job to work in sales and trading after graduating, didn't have to take a lot of classes. And so I was helping students prep for job interviews. And I would always ask them the question, how do you keep up with the business world? It was always a question my dad would ask me when he was prepping me for interviews. And every single student verbatim would say, you know, I read the Wall Street Journal and I would dig a little bit deeper and be like, why do you read the Wall Street Journal? And they'd say, you know, I read it because my parents told me my told me I have to. It's a prerequisite to say I'm well read in business, but it's dense, it's dry, and I can't get through the whole thing. And I only know 50% of what it's talking about. And at some point I was like, this is crazy. Like these kids are working their asses off to have careers in business, literally spend 50% of their waking hours for the next 40 years of their life in a career, and they don't have content that gets them excited to do what they do. And so I started writing a daily business roundup at the time was called Market Corner. And what showed me that there was appetite for better business content, even though there was so much stuff out there, is this first product was horrible. It was a PDF that I put together myself. I wasn't a good writer. There was no website. It was an attachment to an email. I was managing a listserv. And if you wanted to sign up for it, you had to reach out to me and say, hey, Alex, can you add my email address to your listserv? And the fact that a thousand people signed up for that with such friction showed me that there had to be something better than there was pent up demand. And that was kind of like the the initial insight to start the business. So that was called Market Corner, right? Yeah. If I read up and looked back. So where did your passion come from? Not just from helping educate people on what they really should be focused on. But I know your parents were in somewhat in the business, but it takes a little bit more than that. Are you an entrepreneur at heart? Are you a business person at heart? Where'd that come from? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm just super, I'm like a curious tinker at heart. Like I remember in kindergarten or first grade, I, I don't know why I did this at the time, but I was always the person who like, I would take pens and pencils and be like, why, why isn't a pen and a pencil actually connected? Why don't we cut them in half, tape them together? And so you can use a pen or a pencil when you want to. Why do you have to make a choice? Why is there a trade-off there? I wasn't using the word trade-off when I was in kindergarten. And, and I was just like, I've always been really curious. And, and so at the time, I think why I got interested in this was not to start a business, but it was more like I had a ton of free time. I didn't want to play FIFA or NHL on Xbox all day long and have my brain turned to mush. And it was just like that curiosity drove me to do something better and, and learn. And that that's kind of 
my MO, and I would say the MO of other entrepreneurs that I've met over the last five years is they just are obsessed with learning. And that's kind of my obsession. When I don't feel like I'm learning, I feel like I'm not progressing in life. Liebs, guy here. Please uh, wish your grandfather my best. We were in the same analyst class at Branch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. po- po- Poppy, my 78-year-old grandfather, I'll let him know. <laughs> Listen, and Michigan's got... You're supposed to be this renowned football powerhouse. I mean, Michigan football has been shit now for a decade. What's the problem? And then I'm going to ask my real question. Well, so I'm glad I know I can curse on this show because I didn't know until you started talking. And then the second thing is we're not a football school. We're a basketball school. Okay. As long as I've known Michigan, we've been good in basketball and trash at football. No, that's fair. So listen, I'm, I'm certain, and I, I say this somewhat self-effacing, but you probably saw Fast Money in college, and there's a huge responsibility that comes along with doing shows like that. But I think you're learning firsthand the responsibility that comes on doing something like Morning Brew, where people are making decisions based on what they hear from you and some of the guys and gals that are working for you. How do you deal with that? It's pressure. How do you deal with that type of pressure? Yeah, you know, it was a very strange thing to experience the first time that we got an email from a reader who thanked us for what we put out. And it, it wasn't the normal email. The normal email is like, I love what you guys put out. It's entertaining. It's fun, but it tells you what's going on. It was an email that said basically, hey, guys, my entire stock portfolio has been informed by reading your newsletter. And, you know, we talked about this before the conversation, but like that was scary to me. The fact that a five minute read that you get in the morning is informing how you are putting your hard earned money to work was wildly scary to me. And so it's one of those things where I can't, I cannot change how people choose to make decisions because I think you'll find in life, people make a lot of investment decisions with not nearly enough information. But I think what we can do is have a product roadmap or like a plan as a business to start creating more content that goes deeper to provide more information that hopefully these readers will spend more than five minutes to inform the next stock they're going to buy. That's when all the poppies out there would say, oy vey, if people are make, making their <laughs> you know financial decisions based upon that. Yeah. Sorry, Dan, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah no, pop, 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 Poppy would tell me I'm a schmuck if I did that. Exactly. Poppy. Listen, Guy is my Poppy on Fast Money, so um, I, I know your connection there. Let's do this, because one of the reasons that, you know, I, we were really excited to have you on here, Alex, is that, you know, I, last year I interviewed Jim Vandehei, the founder, CEO of Axios. And, and, you know, it's interesting because they've created a fantastic newsletter product for uh, politics. And, you know, at the time he said something really interesting. It was in the middle of the presidential campaign. He's like, we know what you're clicking on. We know what you share. And he goes, we know what you share that you click on, but that you don't read. You know what I mean? So that's been in the back of my head. And when I've been thinking about this Wall Street bets, Reddit thing, and the whole idea of these meme stocks and just the, the diamond hands and all the pressure and all this sort of stuff. It's really interesting to me. And I'm curious, you know, you guys obviously have a very loyal readership. Have you seen any changes in that readership's behavior? Do you know what they're clicking on? Do you know what they're sharing? Do you guys get feedback? Is there anything, any trends that you've noticed in the last year or so since so many new market participants have come into the market um, that you, you think is interesting to share? Yeah, I mean, so there's a few things that I would say. The first thing is, this is why I still think there's value in curation in in the world of just like abundance of content because a lot of people have asked me over the years of morning brew like how how do you guys still have a product that people want can anyone just go to google news set alerts on to be fed stories uh based on stuff they've previously consumed and i think to your point if people did that they'd be served a lot of meme stock content they'd be served served a lot of bitcoin content they'd be served a lot of wall street bets content 
while it is potentially important to know what's going on in those corners of the markets. It's also important to know what's going on with the Fed. And it's also important to know what's going on with some of the unsexier parts of the macro economy. And for us, that's where we take on the responsibility of telling you the stuff you want to know about, but also the stuff you need to know about that maybe you didn't want. And uh, the analogy I always think about is like, we make people think they're eating ice cream when it's actually broccoli or spinach. And like, if, if we do our job effectively, that's what we've done. The other thing I'll say is to like, what content do people love in our newsletter? Well, for starters, people have been requesting Bitcoin to get added to our market snapshot for literally the last two years. And you can imagine that as Bitcoin goes over 40K and Elon tells people that a billion and a half dollars of Tesla's balance sheet is now being invested into Bitcoin, that the replies from readers requesting that feature are only going up. The short answer is we're going to end up adding crypto to our market snapshot because I would argue that while it's not as ubiquitous as gold yet or even close. It is starting to get mass adoption. Uh, it's it's encroaching on that. And it's just, even if it doesn't ever get to the point of having mass adoption like gold, I think it is important enough for people to understand the blockchain and what money is versus what a store of value is that we're going to end up adding, adding that into our market snapshot. So Alex, you might indeed be the next generation Michael Lewis, both from your history and also from the way that things are really read these days, you know, online versus book. He was a mortgage trader at Solomon, right? I'm sure you know that in the late 80s and disenchanted. Sounds like you were also. And it sounded like this was going well. So you had the opportunity really to make the leap following passion there. Curious to your your kind of thoughts on that, where you think you're going to be heading. And I'm also curious, as you guys sold the company and change, and you seem like a guy that speaks your mind. You're not going to be censored. You don't want to be to have, have a certain advertiser. Have you, are you starting to run into the point where you have to not sell out a little bit, but compromise it all? And if that happens, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, I mean, I think it just is becoming more and more evident, the responsibility that we have to people. It's like, I think people sometimes think I'm being cliche or just like hyperbolic when I say that we have such a massive responsibility as a business when we have millions of people who are taking our information and making decisions. But I think you guys, as people who have been investing money for decades, will say like, if people are making decisions based on our information with money that they have worked hard to earn, yeah, we have a massive freaking responsibility. And so my, my short answer is we started as a newsletter company and where we're going is going from newsletter business to media brand. At the end of the day, as much as our company loves email and there, there are features about email that are great, like owning your audience. You know, we own our emails. It's not Google. It's not Facebook. It's not Twitter. That's a really nice feature of it. You also opt into email. You tell us you want to get it and we send it to you. But at the end of the day, not every consumer, not every investor gets their content through an email newsletter. And if we're doing our job properly, we're going to go to where our consumer is, which means social media means video platforms. It means website. And so where we are evolving the brand is to be your one-stop shop for learning about the business world and actually being excited about it. And it's not just going to be in a newsletter context. Over the next year, you're going to see us launch video and audio shows, more podcasts, actual deeper web content. So hopefully when you read a story about Tesla in our newsletter and you're like, 
well, I'm actually thinking about buying Tesla stock. You don't make that decision after two minutes of reading a 150 word story. You go into our deep dive on the future of autonomous and electric vehicles in on our website, and it helps you form that opinion. That's where we're going. You should never make that decision to buy Tesla, but that's a separate podcast. Danny puts the Q after Tesla. Is that what is that? That T S L A Q? Yeah, the whole Q thing. I'm, I don't even want to use the letter Q anymore <laughs> for obvious reasons. It's when you're delisted. Alex, listen again. Amazing job, but think about it. You're, you know, you're a startup. You're the founder. You have so many things going on. You have to run the day to day business. You have to have a, a view of what the next year looks like. How do you hire people? I, you know, I saw the Founders Journal. It's very difficult, I think, in your position. You have so many friends, I'm sure, would die to work for you. You actually yeah. spoke about this. You know, what's the hiring process like at Morning Brew? First of all, what I would say is one of the best decisions I made was bringing on a co-founder who completely complimented me. So I don't spend my time on the day-to-day of the business anymore. I spend my time thinking about like, where is Morning Brew going? How do we get the most out of our people? And how do we amplify our brand in the marketplace? Austin, my co-founder, is truly in the day-to-day of the business. And I think having that sort of partnership is really important. Hiring is the hardest thing that I've had to learn as a first-time founder. It is incredibly difficult. It is part art, part science. As I talked about in Founders Journal, we've had a few experiences of hiring friends into the business over the last five years. It has never worked out. The only time it has worked out, which... I don't know if Dan even knows this. He was before this call saying that, you know, we were court, he was coordinating with Stacy on stuff. I don't know if he knows, but Stacy's my mom. So my mom is my, my mom is my chief of staff. She manages my calendar and my email. And I wouldn't trust someone in this world more with like my important shit than my mom. That's the only close relationship that's worked out in hiring. Other than that, when we have hired friends, it has worked out really poorly. And I can talk about why if you want. So Danny, Guy, and I have been in the markets now for at least a couple decades, and we've seen lots of periods, lots of manias. You started this business, you know, really at midway through what has been an epic bull market here. Me looking back over the last month or so, it seems like a, a crescendo of a mania, a, a publicly driven retail investor mania. Is there anything that you guys can take away from some of the interactions or some of the trends that you've seen on Morning Brew or across some of your your podcasting? I know that you had the Winkle V on for a Bitcoin one on ca- a business casual. Like, did that one just blow the doors off? Like, so, so are there any trends you could take away that, w- that we would find pretty interesting? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, that week crushed it in terms of downloads. The, the crypto week absolutely crushed it. I, I think on average, we're getting like 150,000 downloads on that show a week, that week did significantly better. And and I think it's for a few reasons. One is that there was built in audience into both of the guests, the Winkle V, the Winkle Vi, the Winkle Vosses, they and Pomp, who's huge on Twitter, they have massive built in audiences. So they were marketing distribution for our show, but also obviously like it's still early days in crypto people still. And the other thing about crypto is it is not easy to understand for a lot of people, or at least very few people are able to explain it. And so I think as long as there's misunderstanding or hard to understand things around this concept, people are going to continue yearning for information because they also hear about it as an investment opportunity. You know, my big thesis around like what we're doing and it ties in with Robinhood is like what the internet internet has unlocked is democratization of information and democratization of investing and trading. And that is a really powerful thing. And really powerful unlocks lead to really great outcomes and really bad outcomes. And I think to be smart, you have to understand what both of those outcomes are. And so I'd say for like 
the platforms that have democratized investing and trading, they need to understand what are their bad outcomes and how do they try to mitigate or hedge some of the risk around those bad outcomes. For Morning Brew, we have to understand everyone with a device now can invest or trade for free, which means our information that we deliver is going to be used in a, in a different way than potentially traditionally was because traditionally people had another step of friction, which was actually like paying for the trades or investments they were making. Now that is not a thing. And so I think if anything, the way I think about it is we have more of a responsibility than 20 years ago to be delivering information to help people make informed decisions, which means doing more than a five minute newsletter, which also, by the way, like you look at the wall street journal, you look at the New York times, there's friction in that decision-making also because people have to buy a subscription or they hit the paywall, then they have a subscription. And so they've opted into getting more information for us. We just need an email address. So think about how little friction there is to make a potentially large decision in life. Go to a website, put in an email address, get a newsletter the next day, see something about Tesla, sorry, Danny, and then go to Robinhood and make a trade. Like it is wildly scary how much easier it is than even five years ago. And I think what the one word there is just responsibility. There's more responsibility on the enablers of investing and the enablers of content consumption than ever before. So Alex, uh, one of the guys that is, you know, another self-made guy that I do actually respect in many ways, that's another Michigan grad is Portnoy. And And I know he's older than you, but you talk about the group that he's kind of brought on. And by the way, I think he believes everything that he actually says. And so I don't think he's misleading anybody, but people will seek out what they want to hear. They will not go look. And just the questions about what is short selling, what's going on, short sellers are bad. How do you convince people? And the comment that you just made, if people could get their hands on investor letters that hedge fund managers write in the content and take time to read, they take 20 minutes to read, 30 minutes to read to truly understand how people think. The biggest thing we always did, if we were short a stock, we would go find the largest long. Or we go talk to the if we're long a stock, we would go find the biggest short. So I know you guys try to do that, but are you gonna, uh, you know, not just on this podcast that you're gonna launch founders? That's probably not the place for it. But as far, are you gonna make an effort to just dive a little bit deeper and make people look? Yeah. So I think I think the first thing is you need to put the content out there, which is like we're we're gonna be launching a few shows this year, which you'll see tie in very nicely to things going on in the markets, what that means for your wallet and how you should be thinking about it as an investor. I could make an analogy to shows at at CNBC, but I'm not going to, but I would say it is hopefully a really good take on smart conversations around markets and being involved in the markets in a responsible way. That's a show we're thinking about launching this year. I think the other thing is understanding how to dress up content because like you said, a lot of this content is out there, yet people are not reading it. And that's always been a thing. Right there, there's more content than ever before. But like you're saying, people don't go to a 20 minute investment memo and read it. Why? Because potentially it's daunting to them. They read two sentences in and they feel like they don't understand. They feel like they're being talked down to, or they get bored out of their mind and they start snoring during it. And I think that's why at the end of the day, like having a voice and the way you deliver is as important as what is being delivered. It's in my mind why you talk about Portnoy. Why does he connect with people? Because he delivers in a way that people want to listen. Whether what comes out of his mouth is the right thing, the thing is, is he has learned how to connect with people better than like any of these institutions or any of these massive names who are wildly more educated in these given topics than him. And that's how we think about it at the brew is like morning brew is like your cousin at the dinner table who 
gets what you like, like went to college and graduated your same year, has similar interests. So they talk to you about the Robin Hood and Wall Street bets stuff going on and you listen to them versus like the Wall Street Journal or like old school content is like me talking to my great uncle who's like picking his nose, smells like shit and like not looking me in the eyes. And I, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. He, he's he's one of the suits and I lose focus right after, even if the content he's delivering is more steeped in, in knowledge and potentially the same content. It is how it is delivered. And so many people who are really smart don't think about how to deliver content and they're just selling, they're, they're singing to a stadium full of no one. Alex, I just realized why my kids don't listen to me. Thanks for that. I'll, I'll send you some. All right. Sounds great. So Liebs, obviously it's great to have you on. We appreciate a great deal. So are you a Godfather fan by any chance, uh, Liebs? Yes or no? Yeah, it's binary. <laughs> no, because I've never seen it. I've never seen it. Right off the bat, that's a huge character flaw, <laughs> but I'm just going to fill you in on something. So Sonny's at the table with his family and he's talking about business and his sister says to him, Papa never talked about business at the family table. And her husband, Carlo, interrupts her. Shut up. Shut up. And then, you know, she shuts up. And then Carlo starts talking about family business. And Sonny's like, we never talk business at the table. Now, why do I mention that, Liebs? Because I'm allowed to say shit here, but you're not, <laughs> brother. You know what I'm saying? Oh. I'm Sonny, you're Carlo you in this thing. Se- second time I'm on the show, I'll be allowed to say. This time was uh, I was still the junior person. <laughs> no, I'm just met. This was this was fantastic. Obviously, your podcast. If you actually Founders Journal is your podcast. Folks should listen to that. And your Twitter handle isn't Alex Lieberman. Can you tell the folks what your Twitter handle is, please? Of course, it's uh, Business Barista. Because what would Morning Brew be without uh, the barista delivering the business news you need to get on with your day? And I tell you, I wish people could see this because you look exactly like that, my man. Thanks for being here. We appreciate it. That was the great Alex Lieberman from Morning Brew. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Folks, you just heard us go off the tape with Alex Lieberman. Now we're going off the tape with somebody that's done an amazing job when we've seen him on CNBC, Victor Jones. Victor Jones is the CEO of an investing app, Doe. He's also the co-host of Doe's Social Currency Podcast. He's the former director of trading and operations at TD Ameritrade. And unfortunately, this medium, you can't tell how dastardly good-looking this man is. Victor, welcome to On The Tape. Uh, You're too generous, guy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here, guys. No, it's amazing to have you. And I I did mention that because Dan Nathan sent me the video of your appearance on CNBC. You do an amazing job. But, you know, the Shakespeare thing, heavy is the head that wears the crown. And I got to tell you something. You're wearing it right now in terms of, I don't want to say it was a performance, in terms of your appearance, because I really think you raised the bar when some of those questions were asked from CNBC host uh, Wilford Frost and Sarah Eisen. Well, I really appreciate that. I mean, look, in a pivotal moment in uncertainty, I mean, that's when traders have to show up, right? That's when you have hard hands. That's when you have tough hands or uh, whatever the case may be. And I think a lot of people had a lot of questions out there around the marketplace and they questioned their interaction with their brokers and with the industry at large. And I think it's important to get representation from people who have a lot of experience in the industry. I've been doing this since I've been 20 years old guy, and I'm lucky to do that. It's the only thing I've ever done. And it's the only thing I ever want to do. And our mission here has always been to educate people. 
and to service them, make sure they have answers to their questions. That traded at a discount until the last couple of weeks, and now it's trading at a premium, and we're proud of our place there. Yeah, so Victor, that really struck me. That was the afternoon where I think the GameStop Wall Street bets frenzy really crescendoed, and it was a Friday afternoon. It was after the market closed, and, and as Guy mentioned, I just thought that you know your ability to put yourself out there, because um, I'm sure it was not an easy few weeks for your platform in general. And so, but really, a lot of your commentary aside from the nuts and bolts of running that sort of business and a lot of the questions that were uh, running around there about a lot of um, trading platforms, you really did lean into the kind of financial literacy. I've been following Doe for years. You know, I know your partners or your counterparts over there are tasty. And I know that you guys have always really focused on educating investors, even if they're traders, you know, not even investors. Can you tell us how important that was during this last period? And and were there any lessons to be taken away um, from this last couple? months. I guess the biggest lesson people are taking away is maybe take their investment advice from Ja Rule with a grain of salt. I think for us, it's always been about strategic finance. So, I mean, if you think about typical education in this space has always been, uh, I guess the equivalent would be if you've never driven a car before and somebody says, hey, here's how you open the door. Here's how you turn on the engine. And here's the gas pedal. Here's the brake pedal. Well, that's not enough to drive the car. So if you're just telling people what a market order is, what a limit order is, how to set up a watch list, you've done nothing for them. If you're not talking about what implied volatility is, how to understand a one standard deviation or two standard deviation implied move, you're not talking about how to decrease your basis by selling short-term options against long-term duration. All of those things are important for people as they get comfortable with this concept of risk. And I think there's this incongruent understanding of our generation's appetite for risk, right? For over a decade, you have ultra low interest rates, you have printing money like Tic Tacs. It's created a skew. It's literally skewed this generation towards greater risk taking. And if we are not there, if they're learning everything that there is to know about markets from YouTube influencers, we got a problem. And I think people who have been in the industry for a long time have to, it's sort of gut check time that like, it's not about watch lists. It's not about preaching to this idea that investing is easy, you got to go deeper and help people have a true meaningful understanding of risk in these markets. And if you're doing that, I think you're looking out for their long-term best interests, not your short-term, you know, bottom line. Victor, so people learn through experience. And unfortunately, over the last several weeks, people are learning through experience and they're losing money. That always wakes people up when you lose money, look back and see what just happened. So you guys have always been on the forefront of educating the investor. My question is, when you're onboarding these investors and their ability to sign up and trade options, you can give them all the tools they want, but you cannot make them read it or use them. And you guys do a much better job. I won't name the other platforms that are out there that rob from the poor and give to the rich. But anyway, how do you ensure or make them engage more? And how do you guys identify that when you see everybody on one way on a trade? Here's the weird friction point, okay? So options volume goes up 68% last year, 17 million contracts traded on average. It goes up. And so you, and majority of that is retail investors trading single leg options. So here's the problem. Most brokers, it's harder to get spread approval than it is to get single leg approval. I can go buy options. I can go buy puts, right? But like if I'm out here buying 10 Delta calls versus buying in the money spreads or selling out of the money put spreads, which one of those has a higher probability of being successful over the long term? So we believe, we have always believed you fight ignorance with information. 
And so if we do our best job of meeting the moment when you're coming into our firm and saying, hey, let's talk about what these instruments are, that's a better approach than saying you can't trade spreads and I'm literally going to force you into things that have a lower probability of success. I'm going to force you to lose money in the short term until I think you've had enough experience to move on to instruments where I think you can handle expiration risk and those types of concepts. So again, it's a, it's a tricky it's a tricky double-edged sword, but I believe the reason I'm in these markets today is because when I was 20 years old, I got the opportunity to learn and to lose. And those are opportunities and you have to give people the opportunity. And I think in time, this generation is getting a crash course in markets. A once in a 100 year event just happened last year. Broad-based indices go up 90% off of their lows. I'm talking about the NASDAQ. So what do we do here? Do we just pretend like this is how markets work? Or do we actually engage customers and talk about real risks and tell them, look, this is an anomaly. What does 2021 look like? What does 2022 look like? And how do you adjust your trading strategies to meet what, what may be ahead? And we think it's the latter. Victor, I mean, on top of being very handsome, you're also 99% smarter than anyone else out there. So when you start using spread and basis and vol, 99% of people don't understand what you're talking about and probably about the same amount that are trading on the platform don't understand. Are you concerned that when these hearings in Washington, which you and I both know, we all know that on this call will be incongruent and whatever, are going to overstep and create some type of regulation that shouldn't be there that would actually turn out to hinder and the second question I have for you, more of a comment, is that I don't think this is a one in a hundred year thing. I mean, yes, maybe the certain moves in the market and the virus is a one in a hundred year thing. But, you know, we've talked about this before. It doesn't matter if it's if it's home prices or tulips from 400 years. It doesn't matter. The, the public finds its way in hurting through. So, again, this experience is, is painful to people and they learn on the fly. But I want to get your thoughts more on the regulation. And I'm sure they've been asking you in Washington either to come talk and certainly get your opinion. I think there's the right questions to ask and there's the wrong questions to ask, honestly. It's a really good point that you just made. I feel like I'm in a safe place so we can talk about these types of concepts. But I think, at, you know, when going on CNBC or these large platforms, it's very difficult to get into the nuance of payment for order flow. It's difficult to get into the nuance of clearing requirements and fractional reserve banking, all that stuff. And I think the wrong questions to start asking are, you know, should short selling be illegal, right? We've seen how that plays out in markets, what it means for liquidity. The wrong questions to be asking are, should investors, retail investors have access to options trading? That's the exact wrong question. I, and I only bring that up because I heard that on, uh, you know, Chuck Todd, with all due respect, brought that up on Meet the Press over the weekend. I think to paint with a broad brush when it comes to risk taking, I think would be the worst case scenario. I think the right questions to be asking are, you know, to some brokers acquisition strategy, did they contribute to their concentrated position in low float, hard to borrow stocks? If I gave you a free stock, if I give everybody a free stock who comes in, people should be asking, you know, what types of stocks are you giving and why? And did that con contribute to your, con you know, your concentration risk? I think good questions to be asking were, were there naked short positions? Good questions to be asking are, you know, how prevalent are bots in some of these online forums and, and, and perhaps perception of certain narratives and, and getting people to come on board. But those same questions exist in politics. So I think like there's strong questions to ask and there's distractions. And I hope we don't get caught up in distractions. Payment for order flow, the settlement, all of those are interesting conversations, especially settlement. If we move to T plus zero and we're all settled as soon as like, you know, the same way that cryptocurrency markets work, that'd be really interesting. It would open up 24-hour trading in the equity markets, it would minimize cost, it would minimize inefficiencies. That would all be great. 
but there still has to be accountability, right? Like many other firms didn't have this type of problem. What was the core cause? And let's not get distracted, even though progress can come out of the questions that may come on February 18th. VJ, it's interesting. I mean, if you watch Fast Money, you know I'm not, not a big fan of Federal Reserve or central banks. And I think one of the reasons we have these wealth gaps and the inequalities, I think a lot of it lies at the feet of these policies. And I don't need you to necessarily comment unless you want to. But I, what I will say is it's created a marketplace that seemingly only goes higher, albeit a, you know a, an instance here and there over the last seven or eight months. And people feel impervious. I will tell you from my experience, I'd love to hear yours, People don't want to hear what can go wrong because they only see the market go higher. So my question to you is, how do you deal with a market that only goes higher, people that are incentivized to be in it, and you're trying to be the voice that rises above the din, to quote the great Led Zeppelin? How do you deal with that? Well, that's a really good point. So I would say this. One, we try to keep our message simple. I think we're getting into the nuance here, but you you guys brought up that CNBC hit. The one thing we said was, look, let's consider the risks. I'm not going to come into your house and tell you not to buy McDonald's to eat a salad instead. It's your money. And I feel like while we have a fiduciary responsibility to people, at the end of the day, our responsibility is to help an informed and enthused new participant in this market. So when people looked at GameStop, I didn't feel it was our responsibility to say do or do not participate. If you participate, understand that this stock has 600% implied volatility. And over the next week, that means that while everybody else is saying to the moon and hold the line, you have a decent probability. It's within a 68.2% chance that this thing is trading at 55 within the next five, five business days. And what did you see it closed on last Thursday? 53 and change, right? So like the math works out over the long term. And while you have short-term price dislocation, and you have to explain what's a short squeeze, what's a gamma squeeze. Like all that's important, but I think it, it, the key is to simplify the message, um, guy, as much as possible to make it digestible for the everyday person. And then also, look, I'm not going to get into a discounted cash flow model. I think the reality is most people understood that the thing was rising, and no, you know, GameStop in general in their real lives was not on fire. Right? People weren't beating down the door. So I think simplifying the message is, is really important. To the first question you asked on policy, the part of me that says, I don't care what they do, I just, I'm in the markets to respond and try to make money. That part of me says, look, I'm just, that's creating an interesting upside opportunity over the last 13 years. And a bunch of professional traders have been, have been at the table. A, a generation of young investors, they didn't set the table, they just came to eat. And the people who have been eating off these bull markets over the last 13 years can't say that, hey, all you new people at the table, you're creating a new risk for us. That's not how it should work. Now, I get the cyclicality of markets. I get what happens at the top end of a business cycle. We've seen tons of people go to the markets. Lots of red flags are going off. But again, it's just our responsibility to help people understand you know, capital allocation. We watch our aggregate risk of the firm guy. So when we see cash balance is getting low or concentration risk as a firm, we manage it the same way we would as individuals. We start to message out to our customers. So our education isn't random. We're educating people based on actual firm position risk, actual customer position risk. And when my buddies are texting me, hey, what do you think about GME? That's when I know we need to get out there with the message to the people. So Victor, you mentioned you know all these wrong questions that are likely to be asked by bribe regulators, and we're likely to see probably some bad regulation that really doesn't kind of come at some of the major issues that caused a lot of people to lose money. 
over the last you know couple months, at least the last couple of weeks in this situation. So when I think about your message about financial literacy, I think it's really important because for you guys, just explain this to us, because I've asked this question to a lot of people on, on Fast Money over the last couple of weeks. What exactly was the innovation that Robinhood brought by forcing you know these incumbents and, and every other startup to their knees to basically charge no commissions, right? What was the friction that they were kind of doing away with, right? And so to me, you know, we're likely to see some major regulation around that or some some pretty specific rules. I listen to you and I listen to a CEO who says, I don't want to see my clients take unnecessary risks, do things without the proper incentives just to benefit me. And so my question to you, though, is you might be forced to start charging commissions, right? You might be forced to stop selling order flow and do some of these things, or maybe it's margin rates or something like that. Will startups like yours, and I'm just going to call it a startup or an upstart or something like that, will they be able to exist and continue to kind of come at the incumbents if the regulation comes in? And is that really going to be a big problem? Okay. So it's a couple of parts of the question. So what was the innovation? I think five or six years ago, I think people had realized that were commissions going down? Yes. But for how long had they been stuck at this kind of 999 price point? You can make the argument that maybe Scott Trade chipped at that at seven bucks. But the reality was we got to 999 a long time ago and they didn't go anywhere. So you had brokers that were making money on two sides of a trade. You had They were commoditizing the back end by selling payment for order flow, which I, I understand as bad optics. Nobody wants to really explain what's happening there, but the reality is, and we can get there in a minute, it's created the opportunities for a better retail experience. But they were making money on the back end, commoditizing order flow, making money on the front end from the customer. So the innovation here is the, you know, we're going to drop the front end for the customer. And it wasn't net new. This has been tried many times in the past. The difference was you came in at a time where mobile proliferation had started to take hold and a new generation of people, a lot had had just cast off. Many people were not looking at young people, even if they had the ability to be high earners in the long run. If you didn't have $250,000 in cash, we weren't looking at you. And people realized, look, if I get to that relationship early, earlier than everybody's willing to through a scale business, that is, you know, in 10, 15 years, you've created really meaningful relationships with customers. And you've created a technological moat where a lot of these older brokerages just weren't going to come on board. So the innovation was price at first, but also friction. When I was at TD Ameritrade, we noticed one out of every five young people, they were literally only interacting with us on mobile. So as much as you build out on your desktop platforms, it didn't even matter because they weren't discovering it. They only wanted to interact with brokers firms through, through the mobile device. So I think there was just an opportunity there. They were first in the gate. But MySpace was the, you know, the first sold media platform and we could go down the line on first who, who maybe didn't uh, protect their first mover advantage. Um, the second is, you know, what could happen with payment for order flow over the long term? And I've seen what different brokers like public has come out and done recently. The reality is that payment for order flow came along and it made the barriers to entry in this industry lower. Okay. So if I have to connect to 40 different exchanges, the cost of connecting to all those exchanges and the technology you have to create is immense. And that somebody's got to pay for that stuff. And that's going to be the end retail customer. 
And so Payment for Flow came across where we can connect to liquidity providers. They provide better technology, ultra fast executions, price discovery, and they commoditize the order flow. The optics don't look great, but if you go away from that, you create a scenario where you create technological moats, you force all the innovation, the technical innovation that's happened over the 10 years, you cancel it all and you create ultra high barriers to entry and ultra high cost. You, you force out a lot of liquidity in the marketplace. And so I think if you were going to go on record and talk about these individual topics, I think you're only doing people a disservice if you don't truly understand their impacts. And this moment is a moment in time where we need to be clear, uh, we need to be well thought out, and we need to understand every interaction in a market has a, you know, has a reaction somewhere else. And it is possible that you see some disruption there, but as a company as small as ours, you know, we're willing and able to pivot down the line because our true value is not the cost and never has been. Uh, we're providing a service that's just not captured in free trading and, and most other firms. Victor, I would just maybe counter or add to that a little bit. I mean, it starts with the exchanges, right? Selling data feeds. Then it starts with those people that are accessing those data feeds, being able to purchase order flow. You made a comment about liquidity. And I would argue that retail liquidity, sure has grown, but it's in its own bucket. The institutional liquidity is kind of in its own bucket. The lit markets are basically gone for the most part. You got dark pools. So I think a lot of people don't understand that. And I appreciate what you're saying. But at the same time, this goes back to, I think, the exchanges and how they're set up, how they went from nonprofit to for-profit and how they make their money. And so this evolution of free trading, which is not free, we've talked about it on the, on the show prior, and I completely appreciate the seat that you're in and you, you're doing what you need to do and you're providing a great service. But if you were to change one thing, um, do you think it's fair that, quote, market makers, and you worked in Chicago and you worked in Ameritrade and you understand this, it's a riskless activity that they're seeing order flow before anybody else does, it's just not right. And so until you get rid of that, um, pay to the highest bidder, I, I don't see how things change at all. And I realize your hands are tied on, on some of this stuff, but I, I have to get your comments on the exchanges in general. No, my hands aren't tied. I, I understand the point. I understand the sentiment. And I think, look, there are regulations in place that say, you know, I, I shouldn't be optimizing for order flow. I could literally go out there right now and we could get a better price. But if regulators are coming in and you're explaining what your best execution process is and why you're getting what you're getting and what your execution quality is and what your process is for getting the best execution quality. And if customers are more informed on that topic and how important execution quality is to their bottom line, which is also important in this whole thing. You can minimize conflicts of interest. You know, we're not squeezing for every extra penny, and you don't have to, and you're not supposed to, quite frankly. And I think if we if we're asking tough questions, we should be asking tough questions in this particular area. But at the end of the day, like I trade on my own platform, right? Hundred percent, my money is not anywhere else. So we're only building stuff at a breakneck speed because I want to be able to participate in all these other things as well. I'm not going to hurt myself or my family. We built this firm, and I get it. This is going to come off a little salesy, but it's true. We said, you know, if my sister, who's two years younger than me, wanted to trade somewhere, where would you feel comfortable sending her? And at the at the time, there was nobody that I thought was going to look out for her best interest. And if we can create a place that you know, you have to find, this is a business at the end of the day. And I think customers are reasonable. And if you explain how you're making money, why it is you do what you're doing. And if you can explain it, it means you have nothing to hide and you believe what you're doing is in their best interest. 
I think it goes a long way. And I understand the points that you're making, but I also understand how we're managing for best execution on our end. And if we're giving people quality execution at the end of the day, and that's competitive with a lot of the larger incumbents, then that's what matters. And if we're commoditizing that while offering them decent, great executions, then we're creating a business in which we don't have to extract costs from the customer. You're also creating something else, Victor, that I want to sort of quickly talk to you about because I think it's important. The bow on this entire conversation comes around financial literacy and democratization. But talk to me about the Greenwood Project because I think that's sort of the cherry on top of all this for you, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So the Greenwood Project is an organization here in Chicago, and it provides access to financial internships or internships in the financial services world to people from disadvantaged communities. And I think somebody, when I was 20 years old, they gave me a seat and an opportunity. And I knew what that seat meant. It was more than the desk. It was more than the computer. It was the opportunity to transform my own life. It was the opportunity to create a world and a life for my wife and my son that I couldn't have imagined. It was an opportunity to transform you know, my family in my community's life. And I'm not any more special than any one of these kids. In fact, they're way more driven than I am. And the only thing that these kids at this institution, or excuse me, that are a part of this organization need is a seat in the door. And I think the events that have taken place over the last 12 months have gotten people to take a really hard look at their organizations, not just at the senior level, right? It's really easy to say only three and a half, three to 5% of people at the executive table at financial services are minorities. Well, it's like, how do you, how do you change that? You only change it by starting with the ground up. You got to give a new generation of people the ground floor experience. I started answering phone calls during the financial crisis, and I take all of that with me here today. And I think there's a generation of people that are a part of the Greenwood Project that are ready for that opportunity. And if there are people listening that are in hiring positions uh, at different financial services uh, firms, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to uh, to tell you a little bit about the uh, about the young people that are part of the organization and how they can make an impact to your world. I appreciate that. And you can follow the Greenwood Project. It's at Greenwood and it's P-R-O-C-H-I. I encourage you to do it. Obviously, that's short for Project Chicago, I would imagine. And listen, before we get out of here, Victor, I used to do a scouting report on my basketball game. I used to say, I'm slow, but I can't jump. Give me your 10-second scout of Victor Jones when you played semi-pro ball. I can lock anybody up. Your ball handlers are in trouble. I'm going to turn you seven times before you get to half court. That's, that's, that's basically it. Can I tell you something? My man Rod Strickland, would he would have broke your ankles, right or wrong. Tell me, tell me I'm lying. Rod Strickland was the man. Look, man, I, I know enough to be humble. And uh, yeah, I got to give it up to anybody that played in the league. Come on, man. Well, thanks, Victor Jones. Well, we got to have you back on for sure, Victor. Thanks for joining us on the tape. We went off the tape with Victor Jones, the CEO of DOA. I encourage you to check out the Greenwood Project. Thank you so much for being with us, Victor. Thanks, guys. Thank you to our guests, Alex Lieberman and Victor Jones, for joining us for our conversation about the millennial investor. Follow us on Twitter at OnTheTapePod. Subscribe to us in podcast stores and catch our regular episode. Watch this when it drops on Friday. I'll see you all there. (laughs) 